Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Ahoy, Pete. Ahoy, Pete. I'm sorry. I was focused. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, for episode 209, Project Daedalus, comes to you now via two-week-old holographic fakery. And just a bit of fleet news before we launch into the episode. Pete, some listener feedback from Tony in Chicago. Sorry I haven't been tweeting you guys. I thank you for your thoughtful and passionate analyses and responses to the work. Well, luckily for Anthony, there are not yet 525,600 minutes of Fantastic Geek podcasts yet. Indeed, Pete, flattered to learn this week that uh, our own Stamets, Anthony Rapp, has been checking out the podcast. Extremely flattering, not just that uh, he's involved with the show, also certainly his uh, his great resume dating all the way back to, as you referenced, Rent and, and all that, and really uh, a highlight of the week. It is, and you know, we, we do this for our listeners. Star Trek, in particular, is a passion of fantastic geek but uh, always helps the reciprocal relationship. Uh, and not the only person from the, the show, mind you, who listens to it, um, but to, to share that with them, to share all of our passion and all of our work together. Pete, in the, you know, non-fantastic geek scope of Star Trek news uh, in this past week, Evan Evagoria, who let's not call Eva Longoria, Evan Evagoria has been cast in the Untitled Picard series as, wait for it, Pete, an untitled name that has zero background because mystery. Or uh, works completely with the one casting description and the age. Ooh, which would be what, Pete? I, I don't think we can trust the names are legitimate, but there's a 17-year-old uh, Romulan character. Well, he does look a tad Romulan, at least by his fancy picture supplied to Deadline. So. I don't think he's from Romulus, though. I don't think they got a Romulan actor. Uh, that is true, Pete. And, of course, all in due course with that. Probably not, you know, until the fall and there's actually an episode, but... Uh, Time to speculate nonetheless, but now for our mission briefing. Against the silent silhouette of a planet, a red striped shuttle warps into view and enters the shuttle bay of the darkened Discovery. An upside-down overhead shot reveals it to be carrying Admiral Cornwell, who reports tracking scans on her end were negative. She's looked into Captain Pike's concerns about Section 31, and first she needs to speak privately with Spock. Pike recaps how Section 31 was prepared to torture Spock with Terran technology and that their agent sabotaged the spore drive. Thank goodness, Pete, they recap all of this at this point in their lives. At our point, the beginning of the episode, including Saru calling her Admiral Cornwell, just to make sure everybody at home knows She's Admiral Cornwell. Uh, she does end up speaking with Spock. She establishes a baseline of truth and uh, concludes, or at least he concludes, that he has not killed anyone. And uh, it's the computer that, that agrees. We cut to Burnham saying that he's innocent. And it turns out she's also talking about Tyler. Pete, it's dual 
innocences here. Pike reiterates that Spock must be cleared, so Burnham's job is to make sure that both get freed. Spock explains to Cornwell he escaped by using what is colloquially referred to as a Vulcan nerve pinch. Matt, you know, a non-lethal, non-long-lasting technique. Um, He uh, committed himself to the psych facility because he did not believe the Red Angel's vision was real at first. Remaining confined, however, would have been unproductive. Spock tells her the visions have showed him someone or something is going to end all sentient life in the galaxy. Burnham enters the room at this time and hears there will be no humans, no Vulcans, no Federation, no conscious life of any kind unless they succeed in stopping whatever is trying to end it. Burnham tells Cornwell she believes him and knows for a fact he didn't murder anyone. But Cornwell thinks Burnham could just be defending him because she's Spock's sister, which he points out is not by blood. The first of many instances of his uh, his simmering anger, though, though kept well sealed. The story moves to Pike's ready room, and Cornwell can't differentiate between the truth of the test and, surprise, the footage of Spock phasering three people to death. Cornwell notes that 31's masters, that's those admirals, are perhaps overly dependent on control, the mechanized predictive system. It's overseen by Admiral Pitar, the logic extremist. She outlines the mission Cornwall does, go to control, reprogram it, and arrest Admiral Pitar, and Pike is ready to go. It's a great resource, she notes, for all of the admirals to input their data, but it always comes back to their experience and trust, and that's why she's snuck to see Discovery in secret. Um, Control is located in Section 31's forward operating base. They need to go arrest Pitar and reset Control so it will take their input. On the bridge, Tilly's mouth adorably runneth over until Pike gets her on track and gets her to note that the subspace transmissions were sent to this blank spot on the map, only an abandoned penal colony. Who possibly could be there? Cornwall says that is, in fact... Hashtag, maybe Cornwall doesn't say the hashtag. I don't know, Pete. Hashtag 31HQ. With that, a course is set to that very same 31HQ. Pike orders hit it. The ship warps off in an end of teaser act that feels very, very much like a standard Star Trek episode. I mean that in the best sense. The credits show that the regulars are all there, minus Shazad Latif and Wilson Cruz. The episode is written by Michelle Paradise, the future showrunner, and directed by the iconic Jonathan Frakes. Aram watches a memory of her and what is revealed to be her late husband's message to family and friends that they have eloped and that they'll share every sweet detail when they return after their shuttle boards in an hour. She returns the memory to her archive and reviews several others, deleting some but saving others, like the one where she socializes with Tilly Detmer and Awoshikun when Detmer swore off playing Kadaskot with Tilly and Arium because they've memorized every possible gambit. 
We also see Peter keeping some training time with Reese, as well as simply staring at the stars with Burnham. All lovely additions. With that, the door chimes. Tilly has arrived, ready to hang out with her friend. Tilly notes that there's a vial of beach sand by the picture of Ariam's late husband, both from their last day together. Ariam says the shuttle went down and the incredible loss is left unsaid. Pete, this is an episode that doesn't have tons of time to do the Arium TV movie of the week and fills some of those quiet moments with uh, with unsaid sadness. Um, bottom line, Tilly is here to ask for help with the decryption. In engineering, Stamets is searching for missing pieces of the spore drive as Burnham and Spock think over the Red Angel data. Burnham points out how on two occasions a signal was followed by the appearance of the Red Angel, the asteroid, and Kaminar, but a signal appeared by itself over Terralesium, and no signal appeared when the Red Angel visited Spock as a boy, or when it shared its visions. Is the angel using the signals or the other way around? Here we see Spock icy again, trying to outlogic Burnham. He seems uh, burdened by the vision of an apocalypse, while we see Burnham playful and asking for inspiration. Uh, certainly see the two sides there. Ultimately, Stamets asks them to work elsewhere. The story moves to the bridge where Tilly and Arium work, playfully joking about Arium being half robot. You know, Pete, the old-timey way of saying robot. Uh, Detmer gives a hooray for the cybernetically enhanced folks among us. We see the red flash, and Arium dismisses Tilly. The ship then arrives at 31 HQ, which has mines. This is not Starfleet behavior, and Pike is ruffled. Did he set out the war because he would remind Cornwell of her values? She replies that he sat out the war because if they lost it, the very best of Starfleet needed to remain. Yeah, the compliment here takes a minute to settle in, but nonetheless is recognized. In her quarters, Spock chides Burnham for not having an individual expression like Tilly. She expresses herself, she says, through her work and gets the 3D chess set out to help Spock re-embrace logic. Pete, Spock becomes angered at the suggestion that his thinking, his logical thinking needs fixing, then uh, ultimately gets goaded into playing chess, saying, let's play chess, emphasis on hanging at the end there, which I cannot do justice for. That's because, Pete, I'm not a professional actor like Ethan Peck. Nor Vulcan. <laughs> Arium is downloading data from the sphere when Commander Nan comes in to tell her Tilly was looking for her. Arium lies, saying she was searching for data to help with her decryption. Her augmentation, after all, is not infinite. Nan is Barzan, is she not? And her augmentation allows her to breathe in their atmosphere. She's asking for a computer friend, Matt. I applaud the boldness here that the score makes it imminently clear that this question is a bad thing. Uh, I have to wonder, was this, uh, was this kind of score note, was it called for in the script? Was it uh, simply a, a product of, uh, of the musician? Was it something that they asked for after the fact? Because maybe on first viewing it wasn't entirely clear, like, hey, remember this bad thing for later. But 
the final product is we are filled with a sense of dread. Non, maybe this is the beginning of her, or maybe this is the first scene in which she's starting to kind of take a curious look. But we're at home saying, no, look out. Ariam is the bad person. And and Non is slow to listen to us, you know, on account of the barrier that is television and all that. Uh, but back to the bridge we go. Ariam has perhaps an inkling that something is wrong. Non continues to lurk and watch while Tilly is asked to stay behind Ariam no matter what. Just with that, the ship arrives at 31 HQ. The mines are armed. Luckily, Cornwall has a route to get in, though the shields do need to be down. Pike offers her the chair, but uh, she declines. It is Pike who's tasked with ultimately giving the orders. At that moment of ship tension, we turn to the intimate tension between Burnham and Spock. Um, Spock is trying to lose, but there are other strategies other than their father, who Spock calls single-minded, chooses to ignore. Burnham thinks Spock's effort would disappoint Sarek, but it seems to be a pattern between father and son. Spock disrupts Burnham's expectations because he doesn't need her help. After all, she started the Klingon war and got her parents killed when she asked to watch a star go supernova. She flashes back to her inability to save her parents, just as Spock says she couldn't save him from logic extremists that uh, he was the true target of. He's angry liberated and enjoys expressing emotion for the first time as he tosses the chess set. This is such an incredibly brave scene here, bravely written by Michelle Paradise, bravely acted by Ethan Peck in that the design of it is for, for Spock. And I think the audience to take Burnham down a peg, which is not my inclination. I have no problem with the character. I don't think she has any overwhelming flaw. She's the hero of the series, etc. but him, him, uh, you know, suggesting that Sarek uh, belayed more elegant strategies and all of this reframing of Burnham as a person in terms of uh, pushing away grief and and carrying burdens to a point of over self-importance. I'm not saying I buy it. I'm not saying, oh, Burnham is now much more flawed in my eyes, but it's difficult to argue with Spock's perspective uh, in how he recaps the major events of her life. Pike pages Burnham to the bridge as Detmer takes Discovery into the minefield, the most defensive weapons she's ever seen in one place. Scans show no life signs, but that seems intentional. Saru can tell Burnham is upset. Reese reports blade mines inbound. As they engage evasive maneuvers, Arium sees the red dots again and tells Tilly to go help them. The blade mines are anticipating their moves. Non watches Arium continue the download she interrupted earlier. Cornwell can't shut the reprogrammed mines off. Blackout mines then start interfering with navigation. They're flying blind, just like at the Academy, Detmer. Uh, Detmer, of course, told, or at least it is implied, you know, just keep flying though you are blind. Um, we also are told that uh, uh, the attempt to get in touch with Starfleet uh, has not netted anything. They won't respond. Pike says this isn't a game uh, for Burnham. That sets off, 
your kind of classic TV, wait, you said a thing that inspires me kind of moment. She wonders if maybe it is a game, if the computer is anticipating the pattern of things. Burnham recommends randomness and chaos. Uh, Saru is asked to give a new evasive pattern. Detmer takes it. Uh, this, of course, intercut with Arium continuing to download, getting close to completion. Then Cornwall gives a new evasive pattern. Then Burnham, then Woshikan. And uh, we see, no one else does, Pete, that Red Light Arium, that's trademark, uh, sends a message and the mines just stop all while the ship pulls up to 31 HQ. Everyone seems happy to have made it. Indeed, extremely relieved to have made it. Uh, the warp and impulse engines are down. Uh, even It seems as though they were targeted. And uh, with that, Pete, ding dong, it's Admiral Patar on the horn. Yes, as the mines move away from the sitting ducks on Discovery, Patar uh, reports she ordered the attack on the fugitives uh, after uh, Starfleet Command told her. She also tells Discovery a Section 31 vessel is on its way to apprehend them. They no longer, Matt, have the authority to choose their own fate. Cornwell tells Pike they can't abandon the mission and have to get a team aboard to reset control. He seems a little chuffed that it would... That, that it appears he needs a pep talk. I suspect, Pete, that's because, and no disrespect to the episode, I think there isn't exactly an easy spot for Pike in the first half, first two-thirds of this episode. He's not the most commanding, the most senior officer on the bridge um, and things of that sort. So I think in situations like this, same thing back in the ready room where it's like, all right, I'm ready to go. Same thing here. It's kind of like, you need to give Pike something to do. And here he's saying, don't wait for me, let's go. Uh, with that landing party set, uh, Saru declines going. He wants to investigate something. Burnham is the one that's going to, elite, uh, to lead the away mission. Engineering is told to prepare the spore drive, and in it, Stamets is muttering to a piece of conduit. Spock says that such muttering is illogical, and Stamets agrees, yet still talks to the conduit. He talks Spock into helping fix the circuit, uh, they do a little catch-up. There's still no reason why the Red Angel chose Spock. Stamets highlights that surely Spock must have been chosen for a reason. Uh, the circuit gets fixed, but they still don't have the proper navigational tools. Spock notes that Stamets has traveled the network hundreds of times, so perhaps he lacks self-confidence in his skills. Stamets replies that Burnham loves Spock, wanting to help him. And Spock observes back... A little unemotional sass here. Perhaps Culber moved out because Culber no longer knows how to feel about himself. It's a really, really good scene. And um, Michelle Paradise taking over, not taking over, but being elevated to uh, co-showrunner with Alex Kurtzman, really ably delivering in a, a pivotal episode for this season and this series. We follow the story to the ready room where Burnham preps the mission to enter the base with Nan and then Arium tasked with going on. That's right, Pete, all ladies in what has got to be a Star Trek first. I must confess. I haven't checked, you know, every episode of Star Trek before this, but it certainly is a rare thing. 
Uh, ultimately, they beam into what is in no way a redress of the season one Klingon prison ship. It is, after all, an example of that mid-23rd century prison fashion. Uh, the three women see that the walls are frozen and there's frozen blood. Perhaps the most kick-butt all-female away team ever magnetizes their boots here as they report clear signs of struggle. Arium see the, sees the red dots again, life support and gravity kick in, and they find four frozen dead, which Arium determines happened at least two weeks ago. Burnham turns over a body to discover it's Patar, who has also been killed two weeks ago. Who the heck was Pike talking to, Matt? Well, while we ponder that, this isn't quite a finger wag peep, but I have my finger out ready to wag, maybe. The show has shown us watching Non, watching Arium, throwing out a little suspicion there. And I think that we would all agree Non cannot come in and say, you know, Starfleet CSI, you're under arrest, I have all the proof. But she seems suspicious. Then here she is on the mission. She's the first one to separate away and turn the atmosphere and gravity on, which is needed, which is necessary, which she successfully does. I would have liked in the edit of the episode, maybe just this quick two seconds of non, you know, looking Burnham, Arium, Burnham, Arium. Oh, wait, I'll go turn on the atmosphere and gravity. Just a little a, a little bit there to kind of meet up with non knowing that she's on two two different missions here. But but alas, Pete, to answer your question, who was Pike talking to? Wouldn't you know it, Saru, who stayed behind to work on a thing, he's got a well-timed answer. He's been scanning for heat signatures, and uh, Admiral Pitar did not have a variance in hers because she was a hologram. And using the same <coughs> logic with Spock, uh, that shows that he too had no change in body heat what as his aggression went up and he supposedly killed three people. Conclusion! For all of you on the bridge and all of you at home, Section 31 framed Spock. While this is going on, Tilly is at the edges of the frame, sitting in a station, starting to put some things together in her own mind. Yes, that they've allowed, Control has allowed a team to beam over. She thinks it wants something from Arium. Arium, who downloaded all of her memories onto Discovery, the memories which meant everything to her. Pike orders Tilly to find out what she downloaded in their place and to contact Burnham and Nan alone. Stamets reports ready with the spore drive. On the base, there's a rap rap rapping at the door. It's Nan, and uh, she notes that the station itself seems to have tried to kill the staff. We get the briefest shot, Pete, of uh, somebody who got cut in half by those doors. With that, Pike calls private call only to Nan and Burnham. Side note, is this in earpieces that we don't see? Is this over a speaker that we kind of do? But Arium could have overheard if she was there, but she can't because she's not. Anyhow, Nan and Burnham told to stop Arium. Uh, with that, Arium attacks, uh, pulling out Nan's breather while one heck of a bone-crunching fight breaks out between Arium and Burnham. Burnham uh, appears to be toast until after the act break when she does the old chop to the neck and frees herself, uh, then starts firing at Arium. Ultimately, Arium gets backed into an airlock, locked in there, at least for the time being. Particularly appreciate Burnham's use of the patented James T. Kirk two-legged kick 
at one point to back Arium up. Tilly reports the messages uh, to Section 31 contained data from the sphere. Matt, Pike knows the sphere. He was there, uh, which Arium downloaded. It's all the information the sphere collected on artificial intelligence, likely for strategic advantage. It wants to evolve, control does. The data is a roadmap for it to become fully conscious and destroy all life. Options are limited. Arium can't be hacked until he can't stop control remotely. Uh, add to that the fact that Arium is now trying to open the airlock door and Tilly gets the go-ahead to hail Arium. Uh, Tilly, tears going down her cheeks. Pete notes her friendship with Arium, uh, notes Arium's abilities as an officer and a friend. She's reminded that these actions aren't her, and she seems to fight against the red light, but can't stop her primary motor functions. She cries out for help, asking Burnham to open the airlock and to kill Arium. If not, she will unlock the door, kill Burnham, finish the upload, and destroy Discovery. Arium pleads with Burnham to kill her. Burnham tries to break into control with her phaser. Arium disables her helmet so she won't survive in space. Pike orders Burnham to open the airlock. Tilly sends Arium her favorite memory. Arium apologizes to Burnham for almost killing her and says everything is because of her and that she must find Project Daedalus before the airlock opens. Turns out it was Non who retrieved her rebreather and opened it. As Arium freezes in space, she views the memory of her and her husband coming home. Pete, we have a threat analysis coming in, seemingly from every direction, just like those mines. Uh, let's start with the biggest threat of them all, control. So controls, apparently, and I inflect my voice, Matt, because I'm not completely convinced just from the nature of the story. Um, apparently behind everything, right? I would not share your... Your question of it, maybe you have an insightful theory. I would say the story as presented says, hey, this threat analysis system, it kind of had uh, some sort of, uh, oh, I don't know, day of awareness. Maybe now it wants to lead towards some sort of judgment day. It wants to be a terminator for all the life. Um, I, I feel like that was cleanly presented although and i'm not saying you feel it was not cleanly presented but it's you not the to... presentation it's the nature of a time travel story so you know in the previously on we see the probe so from discovery's launch of the probe we're to infer it came back enhanced because control is self-aware in the future and uses that opportunity to infect Arium to create this situation where it gets the, the number was 25% of the spheres data. I just, I, I need a whiteboard at this point. Matt. <laughs> well, maybe your concern is that 
Control wants to get the sphere data because it understands that it needs it to evolve. And of course, Discovery has the sphere data because it was called to the sphere by the Red Angel, which is trying to prevent 31 from getting data like the sphere data. Therefore, the angel calling Discovery, giving it the data that now can be brought to 31 is the thing that helps cause 31 from causing destruction that then gets the red angel to oh I'm my goodness s- pete you're right it hurts i'm gonna simplify it <laughs> control is bad control is bad and we don't want it to go help help us make it not go if if you are i don't want to say complaint but if you are if you are saying hey what's up with this loopy nature of the story i'm kind of prepared to excuse it in terms of the wacky mysteries of time travel and such um but I agree that we are in this circular territory of the thing that caused the reason to us to go is because we have to stop the thing that caused us to be the reason that it goes. Yes. <laughs> and the agent of that being this possessed form of Arium that so many people, uh, both on social media and directly communicating with us, develop the pity for in this episode i mean prior to this she's a she's a character that's been in multiple episodes but we've learned very very little we had the change in actress from sarah medich to hannah cheeseman for season two um sarah medich still being in the cast but well uh, in the cast asterisk a recurring actress who has been in one episode and who we've been told is going to be in further, whether it is one or more. Right. Um, But obviously this episode in mind, a particularly physical uh, role on top of the prosthetics and the way the episode ends in particular, you know, we have that that feeling of pity for Arium, but as far as a, a threat, this cybernetically augmented human, uh, really formidable. Well, and I think now is a good time to bring up uh, one one comment that was uh, that would have otherwise been saved for for hailing frequencies later on. Uh, our pal, the wise Dr. Bob Keeley, said that his only nitpick to this latest episode is that uh, he wishes they had seeded the close friendship between Tilly and Arium before this episode, which, honest to goodness, Pete, I think is the only, the, the, the only, uh, he's not being negative, but the only, the only constructive criticism or negative criticism, whatever you want to call it, the only ding against this episode, I think he has a super fair point in this episode that has us fall in love with Arium in the first half and breaks our hearts by the end. Well, I'm going to disagree with Bob a little bit because they've shown us them working closely before throughout the season. So it's not suddenly, and we are super tight friends for the first time ever. Um, It pulls back the curtain on their relationship and indeed on Arium in this episode, uh, it's the nature of TV writing too, Matt, you know, they, they show us that before and then get to this episode and expand on it. I, I guess I'm inclined to agree with you, Pete, but I'm with Bob just in terms of if we had had this Cotta Scott scene or 
you know, I know that they were all in the mess hall for the big, big fight last episode and things like that. But if it was just one scene in one other episode, you know, that was like, hey, you want to go to the tennis courts after our shift? Just one, even if it was one little line, I think it would have slightly better served this episode. Let's get those long-range sensors going, Pete. And first, what do you think is the totality of Ariam's injuries, and is the show better served for leaving so much of her past, the loss of her husband, the transformation from you know full human to augmented, etc.? Is the show best served by leaving that unseen? Well, in truth, I don't think we're done with Ariam. Um can she really be dead given that she's cybernetically augmented? Um, all it takes is a writer's room, you know, flourish to say, but then her backups kicked in and thousands of years later, she becomes the red angel and, uh, you know, comes back through time to undo this. Matt, Let's think, too, if she becomes the Red Angel, she could go back and prevent the crash that kills her and her husband. Pete, what's the greatest Star Trek story, movie or TV? What's the greatest Star Trek story of all time? I mean, I think we're going to disagree philosophically. Personally, I, I don't think there's a finer moment than Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Well, I would completely agree. And part of the reason is because at least within that narrative, or at least within the time it was made, however you want to quantify it, they commit to the death of a character. Now, yes, of course, by the time the movie was released, Leonard Nimoy already had second thoughts, which is why they soft-pedaled the ending and so on and so forth. And yes, of course, in the next movie, as soon as the title came out, The Search for Spock, people were like, okay, cool, get to the end, Spock will be back. But... I would argue that the sincerity of killing him that was done in the writing, in the shooting at the time, et cetera, that that carries into the product in, in an intangible way and elevates it. Same thing here. Hannah Cheeseman, you know, lovely presence online and deserves all the, the fast fame that she's gotten for these, uh, these nine episodes of Discovery this season and so forth. But let Arium stay dead. Let this wound continue to hurt. Give us an episode next uh, week where people are still dealing with the emotional fallout or there's a funeral or there, you know, it could be something understated because now there's a big emergency, whatever it might be, you know, where maybe it's a, a picture of Arium by somebody's, uh, you know, night table or whatever it might be just to, to, to let us continue to feel the sting. I would welcome it not now circling around to another character in Star Trek Discovery, the show thinks has us think is going to die but then doesn't die and that's the criticism i've seen that after georgiou and granted you know we killed off prime georgiou and we have mirror georgiou and then culber and now we've brought him back through the network um i'm fine if arium winds up being the red angel. And I think we now have the necessary emotional attachment. Let's remember Spock said the consciousness is human. We've repeatedly established in this episode that she is human, albeit 
cybernetically enhanced to the loneliness, the despair that it's felt, that the, the human entity has felt, use this regardless of, of gender. Um, so I think there's certainly a path for it to be her. It doesn't need to be her, though. Before she dies, Ariam says rather pointedly that it's all because of Burnham. What do you make of that? That now brings it back squarely to, hey, <laughs> this episode of Star Trek Discovery is about Star Trek Discovery. Right. And this episode of Star Trek Discovery is centered around its protagonist, as it almost always is. Um, okay, so we've attached additional importance to the fate of Michael Burnham. But look what the Red Angel did before. It saved her on Vulcan before uh, a CGI creature ate her brain. Um, all right. <laughs> did we think it wasn't going to be about Burnham? Um, that if it's not Arium as the red angel, it's gotta be Burnham, right? I mean, certainly within the confines of this being episodic, you know, television. Yes. I guess maybe I was, I would prefer a story solution that is not, you know, a la Star Wars, the Clone Wars, or even frankly, Star Wars, the prequels in general. Hey, everything is connected to things that you already know. So therefore your father's sister's dad actually turns out to be your mom. Um, which I realized gender wise does make a whole lot of sense, but that if nothing else hammers home the point of things being overly connected I would love the story out of, oh, this was, I don't know, not Burnham and not Spock or not kind of, not that kind of stuff. I know I've seen plenty of theories online this week as well. Here's why it's Burnham. Here's why it's older Spock, but not so old, need to get Leonard Nimoy, but young enough that you could get Zachary Quinto, which Pete is a theory, you know, a theory that we somewhat uh, jokingly toyed with over the summer and, and, you know obviously he's not playing Spock in Star Trek Discovery, but I would welcome something that's not connected to all Star Trek that came before it, even Star Trek of Star Trek Discovery. So the Daedalus project, Matt, Daedalus is not a new term in Star Trek. Um, there is an episode of Enterprise titled Daedalus, which deals with uh, Emery Erickson, who is the creator of, of the transporter. I, I can only pick up where I left off, Pete. I would welcome that this, does, I would welcome the notion that this does not need to tie directly into that episode of enterprise. Um, I would hope not given, of course, the, the Greek reference of the, uh, the father of Icarus, Icarus, of course, flying too close to the sun, falling to the sea and Daedalus, Left wondering, did I ask too much? Did I ask too little, etc.? Um, I know, of course, that by the time these episodes get filmed, they know what's coming ahead story-wise. Can there be tweaks? Sure, but it's not like they shot this episode and then we're like, oh man, let's go now write another episode. I don't know what Daedalus means. Let's go figure it out. Of course, they have a sense by the time it gets filmed. I do wonder sometimes if when they first come up with a name, 
if that becomes a receptacle for an idea to be determined later and maybe if the name just sticks around because it certainly is evocative this idea of daedalus and icarus and reaching for too much and paying a negative price a terrible price so the stakes on uh what could happen if control is ultimately successful eliminating all conscious life so not quite thanos's snap but like three quarters of thanos's snap well uh, pete i don't want to say that you know uh plant life is less valuable than that of you know sentient creatures who can change the universe around them but uh, i kind of do think that so i would argue that the end of all sentient life in the galaxy could be a greater death than the ending of half of all life oh no half of the ants on my yard are dead you know versus you know all people we get the ultimate fate of Patar, she and the other admirals, by the way, RIP Andorian admiral, uh, who we did not see there, but have to assume he I think, was there. I think it might've been briefly like turned over. I, Pete, I think we definitely made, saw the Tellarite. I think that they made that scene more gory than they wanted. Like all of a sudden it was like, Oh man, let's not shoot too much of the guy chopped in half yikes okay we have some footage of that Ooh, let's edit quickly around that uh i suspect that's what happened well listen in an episode where pike utters the s word and shows himself to be a little bit more rugged i, I don't think our tender sensibilities matt i i didn't clutch my uh starfleet issue pearls uh when when i saw some gore <laughs> um but yeah, certainly you're right. Here we have the death of two of those plus Patar. Pete still hanging out there. Who was that weirdo um, human admiral who said nothing and just caught my eye even on rewatch uh, when Patar and the three other admirals, uh, you know, holophone in or I guess hollow holophone in. Pete, if, this if, is why Pike if, doesn't trust holograms. If that right, if if that was even real people, if that was even a real guy, that could be the you know, control avatar there silently in the background. You may have <laughs> hit upon that uh, well before anybody else, but help me understand. So obviously let me help as Kirk said, let me help. <laughs> obviously they're, they're dead with all the communication that goes on between Patar and discovery. But, what exactly was the crime that Cornwell was bringing Discovery to arrest Patar for? Her her crime is giving control to a computer? Is that a crime? I think, well, first of all, I think it's a great question because in retrospect, I think the crime is that Cornwell says you are to be arrested for crime. Um, I think if we dig a little deeper outside what is explicitly said in the episode, it could be maybe more of a Starfleet arrest, like an in-house arrest, as opposed to, you know, crimes against the Federation. Um, so just as one could commit a breach of protocol or a breach of, uh, I don't want to belittle it and say etiquette, but just as one could be, um, charged in the military sense. Meanwhile, it did not break a law in civilian life. I think that's where we were headed for Patar in terms of handing over 
too much control to control. I, I don't mean to say that to amusing to, to be amusing, but that's the best uh, the best I can describe it. Pete, piggybacking off of that, uh, there was some discussion on Twitter. Is the fact that Pitar was a logic extremist should that have been a red flag to Starfleet or is Starfleet maybe a little more open-minded to those weirdo Vulcans? I don't know where we can say Patar ends and control begins with the logic extremism. Perhaps she had been killed already by this threat assessment device and then the logic extremism set in, if that makes sense. It does make sense. It was the, the line, the reference was delivered in such a way where it kind of was like, you know, in, in, in kind of more modern parlance, you might say, oh, you know, that Admiral Jones, they're ultra liberal, they're ultra conservative, but, you know, they're great at their job on the base. You know, it's kind of like, it's not really, it doesn't, I feel like it doesn't, uh, Admiral Jones's politics don't really factor into how he or she does their job. So, eh, whatever. I'm not really going to dig too deep. I feel like that's how it was uh, kind of dismissingly mentioned in the beginning. And then later on, it's, oh, no, this is proof, of course, that she's part of a grand uh, computer wing conspiracy. The, uh, the name of the uh, non-speaking admiral in the previous hologram conversation will now be jones matt <laughs> old jonesy last one from me matt this episode is officially a prequel to the original series episode spock's brain um well aren't they all prequels i suppose uh come on we get his his brain is mapped there's uh the conversation he has with uh cornwell and the device that the little brain mapping drones go back into looks has the dome very, very similar to the device that the three brains are in the original series. Hey, if this episode can do anything to rehabilitate one of the lesser episodes of Classic Trek, indeed, Pete, bite first your tongue. Uh, brain and brain. What is brain? Great. Matt Spock's brain is great. Pete, let's not forget that's an episode for all the for all the uh, gene extremists who don't do anything <laughs> Star Trek unless Gene Roddenberry was directly involved. He had all but bounced from the show at that point. Can so, canon extremists? Canon extremists, absolutely. Uh, you I, can't spell I, canon properly. I C A N N O N T. Watch uh, Star Trek Five because Gene said so. Um, look, if there's if there's little references like that to Spock's brain, I mean, I jest, of course, while it's not a great episode, you know, all Star Trek episodes are appreciated, maybe except for Code of Honor, Star Trek TNG, the most racist Star Trek episode that there is, I would argue, um, certainly overtly racist. Other than that, if this can make a fun little reference to, to other Star Trek things, that's great. Uh, I think we should all just be reminded that little cute references to be cute or to be universe strengthening universe in a, in a fictional sense. Those are fun. Should we now look for more in the Spock's brain oeuvre, the Spock's brain, Spock's brain story arc? Okay. Maybe not. 
But with that, let's go to Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. Let us start with Twitter Pete, the poll back this week. We may have just seen Star Trek Discovery's finest episode to date, period. What did you think? 2% said one star, uniquely mundane. 4% said two stars, loud thinking. 8% said three stars, a fair point. And a whopping 86% said four stars, I enjoy emotion. And uh, I dare say, Pete, this might have been, uh, if not the highest uh, rated in our unscientific Twitter polls. It certainly is way up there. I would definitely agree. It's amazing the ability of this show to increase the bar. Uh, we also heard from the wise Annie Harrington, who, Pete, it looks like she's hashtag Team Pete here. She says, I do not believe that Arium is really gone. I will not. I'm still banking on the Red Angel being future Arium. My theory is that she's enough machine that she doesn't die. She floats out there for a really long time, gets lonely and isolated and remorseful, as Spock said. Uh, as Spock said, the Red Angel is lonely, isolated, deeply pained. She figures out how to evolve, goes back in time to try and communicate with Discovery, to help it fix everything, and atone, and somehow Sarah Midditch is involved. Boom. Right? Says Annie. Makes, makes a lot of sense. Makes an awful lot of sense. Um, we heard from Andre Yeager. That's at Dr. Polo1983. Man, Star Trek Discovery gave me the feels again. I really got to stop cutting onions late at night. Pete, speaking of crying, we also heard from Verse Trek Seth. That's at Verse Trek, who said simply, Bwah! and had a crying uh, Ron Burgundy emoji. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was not expecting the emotion that we got in this episode. Uh, speaking of emotion, Karen Chu, that's at Karen Chu, isolated uh, a little video from the uh, the Spock Stamets scene. And here's how she describes it. Guys, look at the little sigh Spock gives here. It just kills my nurturing heart and I want to hug him. It's like Stamets unlocks him a little. That's also why he gives his revealing little observation that says much about him and Michael as it is about Culber and Stamets. Uh, I can't even. It was so good and so sad. I didn't tear up. I just freaking outright cried. I loved everything about it. And then nothing. Just the sound of beach waves. There's a couple more interactions I'm really dying for the rest of the season. I want to see uh, Ethan Peck Spock have a scene with Tilly. I want to see him have a scene oh my goodness. with Saru. Tilly in particular, since Tilly is this this i pete i know she's super intelligent so i'm not judging here on her intelligence just her exuberance she's like a golden retriever in terms of just attacking the joys of life and to have spock shoot that down that would just be joyous maybe he'll maybe he'll appreciate it in some level i don't know but a couple more tweets here one from i sakara who says i'm still crying uh, we heard from James. It's at Big Killin. Just amazing. Every episode moves the story along, but it's also unique and untethered to a predictable format. One small issue. Did the crew know Nan would survive after her cam went offline? Because no one seemed to care. Ooh, that's an interesting way to put it. Listen, Jonathan Frakes, veteran of Trek, both behind the camera and in front of it, knows what he's doing in terms of building tension for non to be the one. And I had missed it on my first viewing that she was the one that hit the airlock. All I, I was so emotionally invested that first time through. I'm like, Oh, oh all right. She got her breather on. She, she made it. 
And then the second time through, I'm like, all right, she's right next to the button and it could say that she she hit it, um, which is obviously how it opened up. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting to look at it from that perspective, but I, I think non serves a purpose. Um, let's point out too, Matt, what color tunic did non wear on the enterprise? Uh, red. She's on this crew now, right? Could she be the red angel? Ooh. Well, uh, she's not human though. She's, she's not. All right. Bizarre. She's, she's not, she's not human. So I, or Barzan. But so again, that's, that's the word of an emotionally compromised Spock who maybe his, his mind meld, you know, race, uh, you know, instincts aren't as good. I mean, is that really going to be seen as a story foul if we were told it was human and it's not somebody, you, you know, there's somebody who's going to freak out if it's Arium and say, but you told us it was human and it's the robot. <laughs> um, multiple thoughts, Pete. First of all, would it be a story foul if it gets revealed to be non? No, but I would say it's a writing room foul because you know, it's not drunk Spock who comes and goes, oh, I think it's human. Like, he, he appears to be measured when he says it's human. Therefore, that's the best we can go on. I mean, anything could be anything. It could be revealed, Pete, that this is all taking place in the mind of a nine-year-old boy on, uh, uh, what was the hospital show? St. Elsewhere. On St. Elsewhere, you know, that doesn't mean it's reasonable. So I would say the show is reasonably having us expect, uh, or setting reasonable expectations for it to be human. Um Back to James's point, I think he's absolutely right in his concern. I wonder if it's one of those things that gets scripted and gets shot, and then as you're editing, you go, uh, all right, not for nothing. I just showed this to like the person in charge of the hair and makeup department, and they're like, why do you keep cutting back to Non every two seconds? What's Non? Where is she? Is she okay? Is she dead? Like, uh, Fine, she will be or she won't. She, she won't be. This is about larger characters than her, with all due respect to Non and the actress, et cetera, et cetera. So... Maybe it's something that got edited away. I don't know. A couple more tweets here, Pete. One from uh, JT Atkins. That's at JTA is me. Edge of my seat. Great storytelling. Tight writing. Deft direction. Superb character moments and subtle character reveals. And tense, suspenseful plot development. Sad to see Arium go, though we know any amount of Android results in trouble sooner or later. <laughs> Good point. Is it next week yet, he asks. Not soon enough. Last tweet here from Tom Lund, that's at Tom Lund, L-O-N-D-E. He gave it a four, but I most certainly did not enjoy these emotions. I am exhausted. <laughs> Robert T. Frost writes in the Fantastic Geek Facebook page, Discovery 209, a very quick note while I'm at work. A quick look back at episode 207. I really, really enjoyed the cutaways from scene to scene. They had some really... Uh, smooth and interesting transitions and fades a shout out on the camera work r.i.p commander arium gone way way too soon for such an interesting character seeming to point towards burnham slash red angel tie even more now so uh especially after arium revealing the whole mystery revolves around burnham Episode low point, Commander Non's miraculous revival to jettison Arium out the airlock. Comic book death with no meaning. Back to work, your friend, 
Bob. Yeah, that's not an unfair observation there. Pete, you you had said to your eyes, it looked as though she retrieved the left breather to my eyes. Uh, I don't think that she did, which makes it even more, regardless, whatever it was that revived her, whether it was the working one or getting the the other one, we saw her pass out. Now, can you pass out and come to again? Sure, but it's like, she has look, the force, Matt. Well, I mean, look, <laughs> she summoned it with the force. <laughs> we see that she passes out at the moment where she's needed most question mark. And then off screen, we don't see her get revived, but we do see her miraculously revived at the time when she what really is. Needed angel, most. What if the red angel put it in her hand and no one looked the other 48 days, red angel edition. I'd be, <laughs> Far too few. Could we get a whole episode from the Red Angel's perspective? How cool would that be? Far too few shows do that lost style of lost, you know, the show. Uh, The other 48 days where we're going to show you a perspective that you do not know at all and is completely foreign. I get why most shows don't do that because it's incredibly challenging to the viewer, but also incredibly rewarding. Give me the Red Angel episode after the bit, Pete. When you get to the end of the episode where the Red Angel takes off her mask and says, "Hello, Michael Burnham. I'm Michael Burnham." You know, let's then then cut to the end of the episode. Let's have the next episode be, you know, how Michael Burnham, Red Angel, or whomever got there, completely separated from the story, and only in the last ten minutes or so had the story meet up again. To iTunes, Matt, where our captain. Marvel review is to the ire of alt-right trolls everywhere. Any time left, left a review, headlined, delightfully geeky, five stars, and it reads, this is my go-to discovery podcast, as it is enthusiastic, thoroughly geeky, and thoughtful. The guys know their Star Trek canon, and they are good at noting and discussing the nerdy minutiae as well as the progressive political and social messages that are and always have been part of Star Trek. I also like that they reflect on production realities for the show and how those can impact the way it is put together. They seem to understand Star Trek to be a beloved show and cultural phenomenon, but not a wholly religious text worth getting self-righteous and dogmatic about. This podcast is geeky fun for the joyous Star Trek fan. Well, thank you there, Pete. I, I suspect that's the same uh, that that's that's the same uh, username as Annie Harrington is on uh, yeah. on Twitter. So I think that's where the thanks goes. I, I was thinking just this past week that one of the most important moments in my geek fandom and indeed Star Trek fandom uh, was what must have been the first convention type thing I ever went to, which I would have been 11 or so. And it was held at the local library and this and that, the other, and they were talking about Star Trek next generation. And this person got up to ask the person, do you think there's going to be Gorn in Star Trek next generation? And the guy was like, no, uh, I don't really think so. And then, all right, I have another question. Do you think there's going to be Tellarites in Star Trek next generation? No, I think they're going to be going for some new stuff. Do you think? And it was like, dude, they're not going to constantly rehash old things. They're going to come right. up with new things. And 
And yeah, that's that difference between a religious text and a space show where attractive people shoot lasers sometimes. <laughs> Indeed. Next up, Pete, we have a very thoughtful email from Michelle Huber. Here goes. Hi, guys. I wanted to tell you what I thought of the newest Discovery episode. I always do that on Twitter, as ML Huber writes, but I think the character limit will be too limiting. First off, I loved the episode and especially enjoyed how it showed us a bit more of the other characters. At times, the episode has the same atmosphere of TNG's Lower Decks. Not that we haven't seen the other Discovery characters get uh, screen time while off-duty. We have, but this time those scenes felt organic to the show. Usually when we see characters like Detmer, Nan, and Arium off the bridge, it feels like they were just shown to explain us that they do do things off the bridge and aren't just working all the time. I also love Jonathan Frakes directing, and I'm 95% certain that he mirrored shots from First Contact with the away team. All this love aside, I had nitpicks because there were some elements in the story that distracted me. Why was Burnham playing chess with Spock when Discovery was approaching Section 31's main base of operations? It felt like she shouldn't have had to be paged to the bridge. Maybe that isn't supposed to be a big deal, and it's not made out to be, but Burnham is a bridge officer. Two, apparently the crew of the Discovery should learn the same lesson as the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. If you see something, say something. Why did Nan stand off in a distance to watch Arium, but not inform the Captain, Admiral, or anyone else of her concerns? She was obviously suspicious, or she wouldn't have been standing back there all the time. 2A, why didn't Tilly sense anything off with Arium? Or is it normal for Arium to ask Tilly to stand in a specific spot for a while and not move, only to tell her later to move? So, Pete, your thoughts so far with Michelle's words? I'm going to work backwards. The standing and telling Tilly to stay someplace, obviously, in the moments of tension, you're not going to question it. You're, you're going to help your friend out. So that, I think, from a, a storytelling perspective, works the non thing, I think there's more there. Uh, Pike bringing non over uh, the the last of the officers he beamed over from the Enterprise with, um, I think, states a very clear trust and shorthand between the two of them. I say this with no knowledge of their story going forward, but I would not be surprised if in the next episode or later we get. And that is why I had you watching Arium, isn't it, Non? The show certainly has done things like that. We'll have to keep an eye out uh, as, as time goes on. Continuing with Michelle's words, number three, that fake out with Non was unnecessary. Sure, it made for a dramatic moment when we see that Non blew the hatch, but Non had looked like she suffocated earlier. It felt like a cheap writerly trick. Plus, when the hatch blew, I thought Arium was responsible. Was that supposed to be a double shock? I mean, it felt, uh, I mean, it was, but it felt like bad form for the writers. 3A, we were led to believe that Arium was trapped in her body, not having control of her motor functions, yet she could not, uh, yet she could stop what she was doing and look through the door to Burnham. To me, it would have been more, a more unsettling scene and made more sense if Arium continued to work looking away from Burnham if she made her pleas and give her explanations while her body defied her. I don't know why Arium took the time to converse with Burnham and didn't continue to work, and that bothers me. I have to agree with Michelle on the, the misdirection. I initially thought Arium herself, with when she can wrest control back from control, 
she triggered the airlock because Burnham wasn't going to send her out. Um, like I said, only realizing that it was non on second viewing. So little confusing there. I mean, we, we won't know what was on the page or at least don't know what was on the page right now. Continuing here, number four, the mind sequence looked awesome, but in retrospect, I was confused. They couldn't have their shields up, but when we see the mind's impact discovery, it looks like they're hitting the shields. Also, it seems like if the ship itself was taking the full impact of the mines, there should have been a greater impact on it. Maybe entire hull breaches and certainly one casualty. On a side note here, I wish that Pike, or perhaps even Cornwell herself, had uh, taken the con as opposed to Detmer. The scene reminded me of one of the two times that Picard took the helm of the 1701D. And I feel like if Pike or Cornwell had done the same with Discovery, it would have given more weight to the situation. Also, Detmer is a great navigator, but she's young, and I wonder if they should have put so much faith in her ability to helm the ship in that situation. But maybe, that, maybe that's just me remembering TNG too well and making comparisons unfairly. It's a good point about the shields, but I think once the blade mines started coming, it wasn't a run silent, run deep through the the, the clear path in the minefield anymore. It was, all right, put those bad boys up and, and we got to, you know, barrel through this. Uh, last bit here from Michelle. These nitpicks aside, it was a great episode. That, I feel, was made greater by the direction of Trek's own Jonathan Frakes. But wait, that's not all. The control slash AI slash Arium story elements made me wonder if yet another uh, Brent Spiner character, uh, the soon character, will show up. I doubt it, but if you mention AI in Star Trek, uh, is it possible to not think of data? Sure, there were androids and AI in TOS, but it would be to the detriment of this show for it to connect to those episodes. Certainly lines of dialogue reminded me of yet another TNG episode, The Pegasus, and in that fashion I suddenly saw Pike, and to a certain extent Cornwell, as the most Picardian of all other captains. I can't help it, my mind draws these parallels without my permission. Okay, I'm finally done. I look forward to hearing your podcast on this episode, guys. And Pete, that's from Michelle Huber. Well, thank you for listening, Michelle, and, and thank you for reaching out. Uh, regarding that perhaps most famous AI there, uh, data, I would be a-okay with, uh, Sung showing up. I, I think we would have gotten a little bit of a heads up if, uh, Brent Spiner was coming back though. With that, Pete, let's hear from our pal Fred in the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek The Discovery Season 2, Episode 9. A very, very nice episode. A lot is explained and the acting was so, so good. Especially the interaction, of course, between Spock and Michael. Um, their arguments and their resentment for each other. And I think this forms the basis of, I won't say hatred, but don't understand each other, just living in another universe, more or less. I don't think they really will reconcile. Perhaps they get ground where it's livable. And I also think that's in the sense of canon, because we never hear something of Michael, of course, in the TOS series. So the resentment for each other or breaking up or nothing wanting to do with your brother or sister is based here in what happened in their youth and what happened here again. So 
I think we shouldn't expect reconciliation, perhaps a little bit, but not too much that they would have contact in the rest of their lives. What I, of course, liked was the iconic chess set. It's a pity it's damaged now, but it was very nice pictured here. And another thing was that the discussion about the, the game was underlaying under their personal discussion. So that was a, a second layer. There were a lot of metaphors in it uh, through the chess play. And I think this was very, very, very well done. And second big topic, of course, is Arium. We see here a little bit of her previous life. And of course, it's a very, very sad story. Just being married, being happy, being a nice young couple, and then flying home, losing your partner, losing half of your body. So quite a sad story. And, and here she is just misused. She's just violated by a, a foreign entity. And because she is a cyborg, although you could think she's a cat because she's purring, she is just used for this purpose. And there were some predictions that she could be the angel. But after this episode, I think that prediction is gone. So that was all for now. Greetings. All the best. Till next time. Fred from the Netherlands. As always, Pete, some great thoughts there from Fred, who I think very rightly credits some of the fantastic acting across the board. Sonequa Martin-Green all the way down. Let's not sleep on Jane Brooke either. You know, whenever this woman shows up on this show, she brings the urgency. She brings just the the sharpness as an educated, uh, on the top of her game, admiral, here now turned fugitive. She has always been interesting on this show. I know we had mentioned uh, Ethan Peck's performance uh, of Spock there. Also, Pete, I have to think of uh, all the scenes that Anthony Rapp had with uh, with Ethan Peck there to be opposite of the iconic Spock and know, you know, know that maybe the most razzle-dazzle in those scenes is not written to be Stamets, mm-hmm. but nonetheless Rapp finding you know, equal footing because at the end of the day it's not Anthony Rapp versus... 50 plus years of Star Trek and Spock. It's two characters trying to relate as they, you know, try and fix a problem. And he finds that. You look at the arc that Stamets has already had on this show to go from icy, intimidating to now essentially being like the ship's counselor. Um, Apart from the fact that he's, navigated the mycelial network and he's helped to bring his significant other back from the dead. I mean, he's, he's got to have one of, if not the most impressive stories in this entire series. Each character gets that story time, maybe not every episode, but kind of has that sense of arc. Uh, Fred also mentioning uh, this being an Arium episode, we get that sense of tragedy to her. And his words had made me wonder, Pete, now that we have this full understanding, you know, of course, we've known she's part human, part robot, and whatever that means. Well, this episode fills in a lot of it. It made me cross my mind, you know, are, are we meant to see in Arium perhaps a, a version of uh, someone living with multiple disabilities or, or things of that sort? 
I don't know necessarily the the disabilities, just just someone who suffered. I mean, if we want to look at it from the the disability analogy, both she and Detmer have uh, cybernetic augmentation. Um, we saw how Detmer came to have hers still remains to be seen what exactly the nature, the extent of hers is, you know, the, the bar on the side of her head and, and the eye. Does that make her a, a better pilot? Does that um, a, allow her to have, uh, you know, uh, stereoscopic vision, what have you? Um, I, I think it more so has to do with the fragility that these characters, uh, the vulnerability that they have and to tell this very tender story. And like you pointed out before that it goes unsaid instead of, I remember the sounds of the shuttle shaking as we ascended. Like we don't need the, the gory details of the crash just to know that she lost her, her new husband, that they were on the way home to share this with, with their family and that her life was indelibly uh, changed. I mean, in Arium and Detmer, we see survivors. We see people who have been through trauma and come out on the other end of it. Like I said, I, I still don't think we're done with Arium. Um, it will remain to be seen whether that happens, but uh, whether they're made to symbolize disabilities or whether they're made to symbolize overcoming obstacles, I think they're successful at both. Pete, we could not be making our way through these episodes. I can't believe it's been nine weeks, but we've been here each and every week of the nine out of 14, as was uh, reminded to everybody on Twitter, uh, without the people who support us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Everybody who contributes to patreon.com slash fantastic geek gets access to a bevy of exclusive goodies. And then there's all sorts of levels after that. If you want to hang out at control and see how it determines the fantastic geek schedule, we can get you there. Indeed, Pete, though the best treat, it's not reserved for control level admirals. It is talking to you on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,327 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, on Instagram, on Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the P-H, all one word, like it today. Well, Pete, for those listening on the Pop Culture Podcast, we will be back on Monday to talk God Friended Me, then midweek to do what started out to be, hey, there's going to be an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. announcement on Monday. We'll talk about that midweek. Then there's more mailbag stuff for Captain Marvel. Then there's even more to add to that, Pete. So that's going to be a, a jam-packed podcast episode. Then, of course, back next weekend to talk more Star Trek Discovery. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine? <laughs>